Mark chapter 12, I, I will be reading verses 38 through 44. Here, for this is the word of the Lord. And in his teaching, he said, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplaces and have the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts, who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. And he sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money into the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums. And a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which makes a penny. And he called his disciples to him and said to them, Truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. For they all contributed out of their abundance. But she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. Thanks be to God for his holy word this morning. The Bible warns us that one of the greatest dangers to the soul is the desire for status and money driven by a love of self. It is a shame when a position of status, especially in the church, is used for the sake of self-indulgence or self-intoxication rather than for the service of God and the service of others. This is where the kingdom of God would uh, contradict this world and introduce the great reversal of our value system in this world, what we value the most. Jesus said that in His kingdom, the first will be last and the last first. The way to winning is to lose and to suffer. And the fact that our greatness will be marked by service rather than our position of power. This is what he was teaching his disciples as they too were preoccupied with their status and receiving honor in public. James and John wanted the best seats in the house right next to Jesus. They all wanted to be the greatest. And the repeated question throughout the gospel, and we see this in the New Testament letters, is when will Israel be restored? But Jesus had a warning for the people of God. He warns his people because we too can easily fall into the same trap. We must always recognize that we too are sinners and we can all become like the scribes. In fact, as sinners, I guarantee that we have all been guilty of the same sin of the scribes at some point. So Jesus teaches his disciples the difference between false devotion and true devotion. In our passage, we find that he has been engaged with the scribes since one of them came up and asked him about which is the greatest commandment. Jesus responds by summarizing the moral law or the Ten Commandments. Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Now, one of the reasons why uh, the scribe asked Jesus this question was because the scribes were the theological professors of their day. So notice how Jesus goes on to correct their teaching, believed among the scribes, that the Messiah was merely human or just a worldly leader like David. Now, this is an example of how Jesus corrected false teaching. Now, there are some who believe that it is not their place to correct false teaching in the church, 
Because who knows what the Bible says anyway, and as long as you believe in something positive, you'll be okay. But that is not the example found in Jesus, and it is not the example found throughout the New Testament letters, and it is not the call of the people of God. We are called to correct our opponents, though with gentleness, as Paul says. And it is a false teaching to believe that Jesus Christ was merely a human teacher. On the contrary, he is much more than that. He is the Son of God. He is not just David's son as they believe. But the problem with false teachers is not only false teaching, but it is also found in their conduct. So first, he teaches what false devotion looks like. He does this to warn his people about the types of leaders we choose to follow. Some of you may say, well, that's Jesus. We can't do that. That's not my place. But that is not the example we find in the scriptures, especially in the letters written by the Apostle Paul, the Apostle Peter, and Jesus' half-brother Jude. Jude begins his letter by appealing to the entire church, including lay people, to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. Then he goes on to condemn false teachers and their conduct. In Peter's second letter, an entire chapter is devoted to warning the church of false prophets and teachers and how they will bring in heresies that will lead the vulnerable astray. And listen to his description because false teachers have certain characteristics. It says they count it pleasure to revel, that is to enjoy oneself loudly and proudly to be seen in the daytime. They are blots and blemishes. Reveling in their deceptions while they feast with you. They have eyes full of adultery, insatiable for sin. They entice unsteady souls. They have hearts trained in greed. And Paul describes the godless people which Timothy will come across in the church in the last days, which for us would include today. He says, for people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, Proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. He says, avoid such people. Now when he says avoid such people, if we go to 1 Corinthians 5... He is not talking about the people of the world. There's no way to avoid those people. But he says to avoid those who act this way, who are marked by this pattern of life in the church. He is speaking of those in the church, not the world. God will judge the world. But the ministers are to judge within the church. So this is not speaking of someone who makes a mistake here and there. He is talking about those who are marked by this. And so he says also, For among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women. Now these qualities sound a lot like what Jesus describes when he warns the people about the scribes. And in his teaching, he said, Beware of, take notice, 
Watch out for the scribes. See, the scribes were the leaders of the church. And I put that in quotes. The church, the people of God at the time. And why does he say this? Well, because as Paul says, they have the appearance of godliness. But that's it. They deny God's power to save and transform a life. So I want to draw your attention to this list of things that Jesus says the scribes like, which tell us about what their true devotion was or who they were truly devoted to. First, he says, they like to walk around in public places wearing long robes. Now, these robes were meant to set them apart and they were most likely prayer shawl, which would be worn like a, a hood. And it draped over the shoulders. It was a custom among Jews to wear prayer shawls when reciting prayers. But some prayer shawls were decorated with tassels on the ends. And they were so long that they would hit the ground. Now this was to symbolize that the person held a high status among the Jews and in the society around them. Secondly, they liked greetings in the marketplaces. Uh, This was also a mark of high status in Jewish uh, society. Their desire was to be recognized and acknowledged uh, above everyone else, of course. They wanted to be flattered. In public, the scribes were treated as people of high office, much like presidents or even royalty. And thirdly, they liked the best seats in the synagogues in the place of honor at feasts. The best seats in the synagogue are benches that go along three of the four walls of the building. Two on the sides and one behind the lectern in the back wall. And that was probably the best of the best seat. The scribes would sit on these benches while everyone else would find a place to sit on the floor. And there's the difference. And in this way, everyone knew their place. They felt elevated and watched everyone else in judgment. And at feast, they would be the ones coveting the head of the table, much like James and John, who wanted to sit at Jesus' right or left hand. Now, is there anything wrong with receiving or showing honor? Is there anything wrong with being in a place of leadership or to be ordained or set apart for service? Well, no. Paul says we are to show honor to whom honor is owed. And that can be done in many ways. But as James said, when we show favor towards someone just because they are rich or because of their status and say, sit here in a good place while mistreating the poor in our congregation and say, sit here at my feet, aren't we being partial with evil thoughts? So the problem is not just about showing or receiving honor, but it was about What motivated them? What motivated them? And I'll tell you, it wasn't God. They were lovers of self rather than lovers of God. They desired the attention and flattery. They were doing what they were doing only for a place of position. And they would use the people of God to get there. The scribes, like the other religious leaders, were to be servants of God, but instead they wanted to be served. They desire to be seen and honored above honoring God. 
They sound like dirty politicians. Now that's an easy conclusion to make judging by their actions. And the danger for us is that we look down on the scribes rather than realize that they have the same sinful nature as we do. And the truth is, when I read this text, I felt conviction. We should all feel conviction when we read this text. This is the temptation for every church leader and every church member. No one is exempt from this temptation. There is always this temptation to have a popular Christianity. To have a a Christianity that is world dominating and always on the front page of the newspaper, if you have newspapers anymore, or, or always on the TV, or always in the public eye. And we say, well, isn't that how we shine our light? Well, I would argue the way we shine our light is to have an ordinary Christian life. Not a popular one, an ordinary one. Relying on the ordinary means of grace. Relying on an ordinary ministry as we receive and rest in Christ alone. We all run the danger of loving self over God, seeking the attention and applause of other men. We all need to be on guard because we can all be guilty of this same sin. But not only did they serve self, but they also harmed others in the process. And their targets were the weakest among the people of God. Jesus said, these are those who devour widows' houses. Uh, To devour a widow's house is another way of saying to eat someone out of their home. It means to deceive someone into giving up all that they have, especially someone vulnerable like a widow. It involves no consideration for privacy nor property. In those days, widows were put in a tough position, especially after the husband dies, as they have been left alone. Often they are insecure or desperate. They are left to care for children or they are left with property and possessions that are too difficult to manage on their own. And the scribes worked as lawyers in their community. So they would come for a pastoral visit with their sights not on the woman's soul but on the widow's purse. They were con artists, in other words. Yet these scribes were trusted so much that they would be entrusted to manage or better mismanage the widow's estate or property. They became their trustees. And their guidance would eventually lead to the widows giving up all that they have to God or to their own pockets. Do we hear this sort of thing happen in the church? Have we ever heard of con artists in a place of leadership who mislead people to give all of their possessions and all of their money to the church? We've heard this sort of thing before. Give all that you have to God. Give to the church and you will be blessed. You will be blessed with more even. Right? The more you give, the more you will receive. Is that what Jesus said? Well, no. He said it is better to give than to receive. 
So there's no promise that if you give more to the church, that you're going to receive more. You will be healed of all your diseases if you give to this ministry. Is that why we give to church? Do we give just to receive? No. We see this often, unfortunately, in third world countries where there are higher populations of widows and orphans. Now, are we to give to the church? Of course we are. Are we to support our pastors? Of course we are. But these leaders were deceiving widows in giving to God to make themselves rich. This is what you would call a charlatan. They were the televangelists of their day, robbing old widows. Unfortunately, it still goes on today. And the weakest among us are usually the target audience, convincing them to give up all of their possessions and money. Now, God takes special care for widows and orphans. They are those without a father or husband. And God is known as the father to the fatherless, just as we were fatherless when we did not know God. James says, religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction. Yet the scribes were robbing the people they were supposed to be serving and protecting. Not only that, but they were also deceiving their people with their public displays of ministry. He says, for a pretense they make long prayers. Is there anything wrong with long prayers? Well, there could be a mixed response to that question. Well, no, not in itself. The problem is that it was for a pretense. Uh, Pretense is defined as a false display of something that is not really true. They're not really speaking to God or trusting God when they pray. Imagine that. Even in their prayers, they are loving themselves, serving their own image. In their prayers, there is another motive besides the love of God or the glory of God. In those days, they even paid religious professionals to pray at public events. I think that still goes on today in the public sphere, if I'm not mistaken. You could pay someone to pray. Pay to pray has a good ring to it. Don't be surprised if you see it as an ad on CBN or TBN someday. But this is not foreign to us. Right? How many times has someone asked you to pray? And what are you doing right before you pray? You're thinking of all the long theological words that you can use in your prayer. Uh, Not so much because they are true but maybe because you're trying to impress someone, right? We all run the danger of this, and I'm sure we've all done this. This is why Jesus told his disciples, and when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. He even said, don't pray like the Gentile pagans who use mantras like in Hinduism. Mumbling and repeating the same words over and over again just to be heard. Like, look, look at that spiritual person there. He knows something that nobody else knows. Right? 
But Jesus said to pray to the Father in secret, and you'll be rewarded in secret. Pray straightforwardly with full sentences, trusting Him and knowing that He will provide for all your needs. But see, the scribes prayed only to be seen, maybe to boost up their own image among the people, maybe to make a statement or to receive some reward from the world, like, look, he stands for something. He's a leader. Let's follow him. And they receive all the applause from the world. But that'll be their reward. And that's it. But as Jesus would finally declare, he said they will receive the greater condemnation. Not greater as in a greater level of punishment, but their condemnation will be more obvious. Why? Because they are in leadership. They have a greater responsibility to godliness as the famous line from the great cinematic masterpiece, Spider-Man. Uncle Ben says, with great power comes great responsibility. Now, we live in a society where we reward the shameless. For instance, today the world is overly obsessed with keeping it real or being real, being yourself. Oftentimes, it is an excuse to indulge in sin. But the truth of the matter is, we all wear masks, don't we? And masks are not always bad. C.S. Lewis in his autobiography, Surprised by Joy, uh, speaks of the importance of wearing masks for the moral life. He says, we wear masks for the sake of Christian growth. There are certain things about yourself, like remaining sin and corruption, that you are rightly ashamed of. So out of self-control, for the sake of Christian improvement, and so that you cause no one else to stumble, you put a mask on. He is saying that our outward actions still matter even if our hearts are failing. We all have a remaining indwelling sin, but we can't live out of them just because we want to keep it real. Our actions still matter. The thing is, our masks must be for the right reasons. It's not so that I can say, hey, look at, at how good I am. It must be for the sake of God's glory and my neighbor's good. It is so that I can grow into what I'm aiming to be because we are all striving for perfection, as Paul says. It is called self-control and the practice of putting our sin to death. See, that is totally different than what is going on here with the scribes. Jesus is not speaking about just wearing masks out of self-control. He is speaking about total deception. Deceiving and exploiting others for the sake of serving self. So this becomes a warning for both church leaders as well as members that we are to keep an eye not only on our doctrine but also on our lifestyles and examine what we love the most. If not, there are dire consequences. And look at the effects it has on others. 
Secondly, he teaches what true devotion looks like. Now in the temple, they were in the court of women, which is between the court of the Gentiles and the court of Israel, or what they would call the court of men. It was called the court of women, not because it was for women only, but this is the one area in the temple where women were allowed to enter and pray. This was as far as they could go. And Jesus sat down opposite the treasury. And he watched the people put money or copper coins into the offering box. By this time, the temple had become and served as a large bank for the people of Israel where a lot of money was going in and coming out. Now God calls us to give gifts or offerings. He first called his people to give gifts in the construction of the tabernacle. And later he gives his people instructions in tithing. They would tithe or give 10% of all that they reaped or produced such as grain, new wine, oil, the firstborn of their herds and so on. And so for long journeys, they could even exchange their gifts for money and drop money into the offering box. Uh, The gifts were used to support the priests and Levites, and some of it went to help the poor, sojourners, orphans, and widows. This offering box was one of 13 boxes or chests set up in the middle of the court where all can see the people put in their offerings. There were two chests for the temple tax, two for bird or whole offerings, three for wood, incense, and gold offerings, and six chests for free will offerings. And donations for the poor would be made separately. And here Jesus saw two parties. He saw many rich people put in large sums or silver or gold coins into the chests. And based on the context... These were the scribes who had become rich from the exploitation of the people, like the widows. And the second was a poor widow who put in two small copper coins, which would equal a penny in today's U.S. currency. So this was a perfect opportunity to contrast the devotion of the scribes and the true spiritual devotion of this poor widow. And he called his disciples to him and said to them, Truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. For they all contributed out of their abundance, but she out of her poverty has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. There Jesus goes again, turning our value system upside down. This uh, poor widow may have approached this offering box insecure, maybe ashamed that she didn't have much to give. But Jesus said that she gave more. How is that possible? Well, because true devotion is not marked by quantity or how much you give. What matters in the kingdom of God is not how much you have, nor the amount that you give. But it is the proportion of it compared to the rest of what you have. And the personal cost that it took for you to give it. In other words, did you count the cost and gave anyway? 
Did you suffer the pain of personal loss when you gave or when you served? Because there's always a cost in our devotion to God. This is why Jesus explains why she she gave more. Because he said the rich gave out of their abundance. They didn't suffer loss when they gave. But she out of her poverty has put in everything that she had. Now think, $100,000 is a lot of money, right? But it is only 10% if you have a million and 1% if you have 10 million. She gave two out of two coins, which was 100% of what she had. This one act of giving could have cost her her next meal or her child's next meal. Also, true devotion is to be directed toward God, not man. She recognized that everything was given to her by God anyway. It is not the amount but love toward God and love toward those whom we are giving. This is why Jesus told his disciples that when they give to the needy, don't give like the hypocrites who sound a trumpet so that they may be praised by others. But give in secret. And your father will reward you in secret. You don't have to attend a a charity to give. This poor widow had devoted herself to God, to his temple, and to the leaders that had been placed over her, though they were corrupt and possibly robbing her of everything, yet she trusted God and continued to give to his temple. But that leads me to say... That this is not a good passage to preach about giving more to the church. This is not a good passage to preach about giving faithfully. I know we've all heard it before. Because in the backdrop of this story of this faithful widow is the corruption of the religious leaders. They got rich off of widows. This is as much of a warning about corruption as it is about true devotion. This woman was not only an example of devotion, but she was also a victim of sin. And the church leaders must be on guard because we serve a just God. So the proper application that I would have for you would not be, if you want to give faithfully, give 100% of your bank accounts over to the church. That wouldn't be a good application, now would it? All of your possessions are are God's anyway. And we are called to be faithful stewards, not only with money, but with our entire lives. We all must count the cost. But we must recognize first and foremost that this woman, though she was truly devoted, an example for all of us, she too was a sinner in need of grace. And secondly, she was a victim of sin. And she was misled and driven to poverty. She was the victim of an unjust and corrupt system governed by man's sin. So in other words, she needed someone to deliver her completely. 
She needed someone to deliver her from her own sin and from the sins of others. And guess what? Her Lord was there. Her Lord was there, watching over her, taking notice of her, probably thinking of her reward that she will receive one day, a reward much greater than the riches of this world. Her Lord was there. And He will go on to redeem her at the cross. And one day, He would do away with this corrupt system. And bring justice to his people. She needed a savior like all of us. The scribes made themselves rich because of sin. This woman showed her devotion after she was driven to poverty. But there was one. Who was truly devoted to his father who was present. Who made himself poor. To do away with sin. And to take us to a place where we will be truly rich. It is in this way that Paul says, you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. He became poor so that you'd become rich. That's the gospel. That's the gospel truth that was there among her and with her. Now we don't know what happened to this widow, but I would hope to see this woman one day and rejoice with her that she no longer has to worry about her next meal. For we will all be feasting at the wedding feast of the Lamb because her Savior cared for her and delivered her from her sins and the sins committed against her. Just like He cares for and delivered us from this corrupt and evil age. Amen.